Abdu'l-Baha gave a unity feast in West Inglewood, New Jersey on Saturday, June 29th to the Baha'is of New York and vicinity. About 300 were present. In addition to the seven Persians in his party, there were guests from Philadelphia, Buffalo, Greenacre, Washington, D.C., Pittsburgh, San Francisco, and Portland. There, in the fragrant pine grove, on a bright June day, Abdu'l-Baha, himself the host, smiling joyously and radiating the spirit of goodwill, welcomed the happy friends. It was indeed a picture and one of the utmost spiritual significance. Christians, Jews, Mohammedans, and the white and black races were represented. Abdu'l-Baha's very presence seemed to fill every soul with love. The bountiful meal was a Persian feast, the delicious dishes being prepared by members of his Oriental party. He talked to them from the center of the large circle around which the tables were arranged. He said, this is a good gathering. With sincere intentions have you all gathered here. The intention of all is the attainment of the virtues of God. The purpose of all is unity and agreement. The desire of all is attraction to the kingdom of God. Since the intention of all is toward unity and agreement, it is certain that this gathering will be productive of great results. It will be the cause of attracting a new bounty. This is a new day, and this hour is a new hour, wherein we have come together here. All are turning to the kingdom of Abha, seeking the infinite bounties of the Lord. Surely the sun of reality, with its great and full effulgence, will illuminate us, and all dark disagreements will surely disappear. The utmost of love shall result. The favors of God shall encompass us. The pathway of the kingdom will be made easy. The souls, like unto candles, will be ignited and made radiant through the lights of the great guidance. This gathering has no peer or likeness upon the surface of the earth, for all other gatherings and assemblages are due to some physical basis or material interests. This outward meeting is a prototype of the inner and complete spiritual meeting. Likewise are the other meetings and assemblages in different parts of the world which are thus held. The Baha'i meetings are the mirrors of the kingdom, wherein images of the supreme concourse are reflected. The lights of the most great guidance are visible therein. The summons of the kingdom can be heard from the Baha'i assemblages, and the call of the supreme concourse can reach every ear. The efficacy of such meetings as these is permanent throughout the ages. This assembly has a name which will last forever and ever. Hundreds of thousands of meetings shall be held to commemorate such an assembly as this, and the very words I utter to you on this occasion shall be reiterated by them in the ages to come. Therefore, be ye rejoiced, for you are being sheltered beneath the providence of God, and be happy and joyous, because the bestowals of God are intended for you. Rejoice, because the breaths of the Holy Spirit are directed to you.
After dinner, Abdu'l-Bahá passed around the great circular table and himself blessed each guest, placing rose perfume upon their foreheads. In the evening, a meeting was held on the lawn of the Wilhelm home. Abdu'l-Bahá, speaking from the veranda to some 150 Inglewood guests who were seated in canop chairs. After this meeting, questions were answered while he walked up and down the country road in front of the house. He remained with the Wilhelm family until Sunday morning, when he left to fill an engagement in another part of New Jersey. You're listening to the Journey West podcast, dedicated to following the travels of Abdu'l-Bahá in the West. Welcome to the podcast. At the top of the show, we heard about the Unity Feast held at the home of Hand of the Cause of God, Roy Wilhelm. Mr. Wilhelm was a successful New York businessman who became interested in the faith after accompanying his mother to the Holy Land in 1907. He served on several committees and institutes and helped support the teaching efforts of prominent Baha'is, such as Martha Root and Louis Gregory. Let's move now to this week's talk and discussion centered around the poor and issues of equality related to economy. 1st July, 1912. Talk at 309 West 78th Street, New York. What could be better before God than thinking of the poor? For the poor are beloved by our Heavenly Father. When Christ came upon the earth, those who believed in him and followed him were the poor and lowly, showing that the poor were near to God. When a rich man believes and follows the manifestation of God, it is a proof that his wealth is not an obstacle and does not prevent him from attaining this pathway of salvation. After he has been tested and tried, it will be seen whether his possessions are a hindrance in his religious life. But the poor are especially beloved of God, their lives are full of difficulties, their trials continual, their hopes are in God alone. Therefore, you must assist the poor as much as possible, even by sacrifice of yourself. No deed of man is greater before God than helping the poor. Spiritual conditions are not dependent upon the possession of worldly treasures or the absence of them. When one is physically destitute, spiritual thoughts are more likely Poverty is a stimulus toward God. Each one of you must have great consideration for the poor and render them assistance. Organize in an effort to help them and prevent increase of poverty. The greatest means for prevention is that whereby the laws of the community will be so framed and enacted that it will not be possible for a few to be millionaires and many destitute. One of Baha'u'llah's teachings is the adjustment of means of livelihood in human society. Under this adjustment, there can be no extremes in human conditions as regards wealth and sustenance. For the community needs financier, farmer, merchant, and laborer, just as an army must be composed of commander, officers, and privates. All cannot be commanders. All cannot be officers or privates. Each in his station in the social fabric must be competent. Each in his function according to ability 
but with justice of opportunity for all. Lycurgus, king of Sparta, who lived long before the day of Christ, conceived the idea of absolute equality in government. He proclaimed laws by which all the people of Sparta were classified into certain divisions. Each division had its separate rights and function. First, farmers and tillers of the soil. Second, artisans and merchants. Third, leaders or grandees. Under the laws of Lycurgus, the latter were not required to engage in any labor or vocation, but it was incumbent upon them to defend the country in case of war and invasion. Then he divided Sparta into 9,000 equal parts or provinces, appointing 9,000 leaders or grandees to protect them. In this way, the farmers of each province were assured of protection, but each farmer was compelled to pay a tax to support the grandee of that province. The farmers and merchants were not obliged to defend the country. In lieu of labor, the grandees received the taxes. Lycurgus, in order to establish this forever as a law, brought 9,000 grandees together, told them he was going upon a long journey and wished this form of government to remain effective until his return. They swore an oath to protect and preserve his law. He then left his kingdom, went into voluntary exile, and never came back. No man ever made such a sacrifice to ensure equality among his fellow men. A few years passed, and the whole system of government he had founded collapsed, although established upon such a just and wise basis. Difference of capacity in human individuals is fundamental. It is impossible for all to be alike, all to be equal, all to be wise. Baha'u'llah has revealed principles and laws which will accomplish the adjustment of varying human capacities. He has said that whatsoever is possible of accomplishment in human government will be effected through these principles. When the laws he has instituted are carried out, there will be no millionaires possible in the community, and likewise no extremely poor. This will be affected and regulated by adjusting the different degrees of human capacity. The fundamental basis of the community is agriculture, tillage of the soil. All must be producers. Each person in the community whose need is equal to his individual producing capacity shall be exempt from taxation. But if his income is greater than his needs, he must pay a tax until an adjustment is effected. That is to say, a man's capacity for production and his needs will be equalized and reconciled through taxation. If his production exceeds, he will pay a tax. If his necessities exceed his production, he shall receive an amount sufficient to equalize or adjust. Therefore, taxation will be proportionate to capacity and production, and there will be no poor in the community. Baha'u'llah likewise commanded the rich to give freely to the poor. In the Kitabi Akdas, it is further written by him that those who have a certain amount of income must give one-fifth of it to God, the creator of heaven and earth. Now to our roundtable discussion. My name is Kendra, and I'm a writer. My name is Zane, I'm a student. And my name is Pasha, and I'm also a student. So on the 1st of July in 1912, Abdu'l-Bahá gave a talk at 309 West 78th Street in New York. 
and right away he said, what could be better before God than thinking of the poor? And as I read this a couple of times before meeting with you guys today, I thought, well, how often do I think about the poor? What does it mean to think about the poor? What, what actions should I take as someone who thinks about the poor? <laughs> do you guys have ideas about that? I guess society today has standardized the lower class as people just no conversation, just kind of continue with their business, don't even partake in helping them, but I guess as Baha'is we should, obviously, it says if we obtain a gift we should share with others, so I think almost like a lending hand almost, and we shouldn't see the poor as their own class because we're all equal amongst men. So I think it's a growing problem to see that society has kind of shifted from, you know, community life to watching, like the individual watching out for themselves. You know, so you pass through the street and you're always concerned with, you know, will I be late? Will I be this? Will I be that? If I do this, what will it, will it affect my schedule? And you, you know, you don't tend to see what goes on in your peripheral vision and you know, often on the street that's where they are. So does that mean we should stop and talk to everyone? <laughs> I've had that question too. Right? When yeah. you're trying to get from point A to point B, uh, when do you know <laughs> to stop and take care of someone if, if someone looks like they're in need? Or to you know, not keep the people waiting where you're, where you're headed? True, like, I guess many encounters have came into people that I guess, are looking for something like a, a substance of begging. But I know in the act as it says we're not to give any type of, we shouldn't have any type of remorse or any type of like sympathy someone's begging. But if something, someone looks in a condition that they're in need of help, that's when we should help them. So I think, yeah, there's, there's many, I don't know, I know there's one category of poor, but there's some people that actually need and some people are just doing it for themselves also. So I think it goes like in many subcategories, which obviously I can experience because I've always been around prosperity and good wealth, I guess. I'm fortunate of that, but I could imagine what these people go through on a daily basis. I guess Adabaha talks about these people literally have nothing, so when they rely on God, that's like their only sustenance. I think to tag along to your question, it's interesting because some people, I guess, could view... Um, thinking of the poor as just walking by the street and giving them money. But <clears throat> it's interesting because Abdu'l-Baha often, from what I know, he would develop a personal relationship with them and he would go and he would keep up with them and see how they were doing over a long span of time. And then it, you know, that raises the question that, do you have the resources to do that? Do you have the time on a daily basis to do this? Um, and then oftentimes people, will, I guess, will find it more manageable to go to, let's say, a homeless shelter every week. So I guess that could be one way um, to kind of integrate yourself into thinking of the poor. I like the reminder of Abdu'l-Baha's example of actually building relationships with people. Um, and I think that's kind of difficult, not just um, because of our individual limitations, but because of the way society is structured. You mentioned the word class right away, Zane, I remember. And I think so long as society um, is really org organized around separate classes, mm -hmm. it's hard to 
to see practically, at least, yeah, yeah, how there's going to be regular interaction rather than, you know, every once in a while passing someone and helping them out, or even a weekly visit to a home yeah. shelter, a homeless shelter, um, can be motivated by really pure intentions mm. and have really, you know, a positive impact. But I think the rest of the talk, Abdul Baha talks about how actually society needs to be restructured in order to to more effectively think about the poor, think about everyone for that matter. Because I found it interesting that later on, he also says that um, there are spiritual benefits to poverty almost. Without advocating that we impoverish, impoverish ourselves, he does say that when one is physically destitute, spiritual thoughts are more likely and that poverty is a stimulus towards God because all our hopes are placed in God if, if we're poor. We can't rely on our own you know, powers or resources if, if we don't have that many. So when he begins to talk about the adjustment of the means of livelihood as one of Baha'u'llah's teachings, it seems like that's not only going to benefit people who have little means, but also those that have many means, and those are actually an obstacle between them and God. At least in the society that I'm a part of, you can see that it's headed in the opposite direction. The rich are getting richer and, and the poor are getting, unfortunately, poorer. But towards the end of, of the talk, he does paint a hopeful picture. He says, Baha'u'llah has revealed principles and laws which will accomplish the adjustment of uh, varying human capacities. and. When the laws he has instituted are carried out, there will be no millionaires possible in the community, and likewise no extremely poor. So it's not that we're hopeless. <laughs> I think it just matters when we can get there. And it says also adjusting in different degrees of human capacity. Mm. So there's many ways we can acquire ways of living and lifestyle. So I think this topic of degrees of human capacity, it's, it's also t another topic of conversation. But when society is more mature and you see that these defilements, these, these possessions, like literally um, a Baha'i scholar says, like you're born naked and you're dead naked. Meaning like everything you have in life, it's gonna at least go away or one day something else is gonna own it. And it's like, it's like a phase of detachment. So that's why like it says the poor, the stimulus of God, meaning almost like it's not like a channel way, but almost like since they don't really have anything but God, then they might as well like point towards his countenance, you know? But then it talks about wealth as a barrier, and there's many people that tested between that, but I think it's interesting about degrees of capacity of human, so. It seems like he, he as in Abdu'l-Bah, provides the solution in one talk, and it hasn't exactly taken hold yet. One thing I noticed in high school was that a lot of the students are very politically charged. And there's a lot of emphasis behind joining political action committees, you know, even for 15-year-olds. And when President Obama came into office and he proposed this whole different tax, you know, program, the majority of, of my school, they're, all, they're mostly conservative, and they lost it. And it seems that these are, these are children. They're not, they're not actually raking in money that will be taxed. So it's interesting to see how 
at kind of the grassroots of our our country, you know, being the United States, you can have such emotionally charged constituents, which really aren't constituents. They're just children. Who are parroting what they hear at home, yeah. most likely, in most cases. Yeah. That, for me, gets to the, I, the concept of identity. Also coming from the United States, um, and growing up in that political system, I saw people aligning with political movements and allowing where they fell on the you know, spectrum of partisanship identify them. Like their values, their being, in a way, was represented by their party. And I think part of helping the teachings of Baha'u'llah actually diffuse through the world is having a conversation about identity, about human identity, and broadening our basis for it and broadening our loyalties. Because it will be extremely hard to do things that Abdu'l-Baha speaks of in this talk, like the rich freely giving to the poor. It's going to be difficult to ask people to share or to ask for a taxation scheme, the one that Abdu'l-Baha explains at the end of this talk. If you make more than you need, then you're taxed. If you need more than you make, then you receive some help. <laughs> if you make just what you need, then you just stay right there, <laughs> neutral. Um, but that already is challenging for many, not just in the US, in many places. like. It's hard for people to understand the proper relationship between the individual and society. And what I make, I'm putting quotations around I, and what society owes me or what I owe society, that our relationships are all a bit uh, off balance. I think that's where our problems are coming from. But if we recognize oneness, which is a deceptively simple idea. If we recognize it, then sharing will come much more naturally and we'll see that our personal fulfillment lies in the welfare of others. It's interesting because I remember in the younger years of schooling, sharing was very important. You, know, you wouldn't dare take all of something because then your classmate would get upset. And it's funny because we can forget that you know, so however so many years down the road. I think it's interesting how Abdu'l-Bahá puts an analogy of, of a community, of a functioning community, now how it needs to have the same morals or same function as an army, and how it needs to be composed of commanders, officers, and privates, and all cannot be commanders, all cannot be officers or privates. And then when I think all cannot be commanders, that reminds me of the wealthy, you know, because everyone has that commanding position, you know, you want to tell people what to do, because everyone's fighting for that position because they're doing it for themselves. But then the privates remind me, like, they're the ground troops, they're doing everything, they're doing all the work, but yet they're not giving them much respect, so I can give that as the poor. But then it goes back on the topic of the Baha'u'llah's revealed principles and laws which will accomplish the adjustment of very human capacities. The first time that I read this, I was a bit confused, because I had always been under the impression that, you know, you need to push yourself as much as you can so that you can you know, get to the, 
let's say, upper echelon of success and et cetera. But when I first read this, I was like, well, if there's not going to be a gap, then what does that mean? Should I try or not? And then I kept reading it, and then I realized that it's not saying, you know, at the end of the day, everyone will be the same. Uh, Capacity-wise, uh, right after the, the analogy to the army, it says, each in his station in the social fabric must be competent each in his function according to, the, according to ability, but with justness of opportunity for all. So as long as everybody has the same outlets for success, that's where we're trying to get. But within that system, various individuals based on their capacity can fulfill certain things and others can go in another direction. That's it for the podcast this week. Special thanks to Sheer Trick for playing the woman at the Unity Feast, Ian Carter for reading, and our group participants, Kendra Booth, Zane Dedrison, and Pasha Mushtagim. If you'd like more information about Abdu'l-Bahá's travels in the West, visit our site, www.thejourneywest.org. You can also find us on Facebook and Twitter at the Journey West. Thanks everyone. Bye.